are listening to a podcast from The National. To maintain international peace and security, and to that end, to take effective collective measures for the prevention and removal of threats to the peace and for the suppression of acts of aggression. That's the first part of Article 1 of the United Nations Charter, a legally binding agreement held to the highest esteem and signed by all but a handful of nations. The membership entails work, money, and an endless stream of bureaucratic procedures. It suggests a seamless transition of authorities between the United Nations and the governments of 193 countries to help achieve the sole overarching objective of the Charter. Peace. Yet, somehow, more than 70 years after the United Nations was formed, I do not think anyone would come remotely close to saying the world is at peace. In fact, some studies suggest that although wars in the traditional sense have decreased, conflict and death has never been more prevalent. So then we must ask, is the United Nations working? This is Beyond the Headlines, Nayam Nasr al-Wesmi. Next week, the National will be sending a team of journalists to cover the range of issues that pertain to the region in the United Nations. We'll actually be recording next week's episode from New York. This week, we'll raise the curtain on the event. Ahead of arguably the largest conference of the year, the General Assembly, where all the countries of the United Nations join to discuss all the issues they think warrants international attention, the world looks for some respite. It seems like every year the General Assembly comes around at a time where it looks like Earth might be on the brink of disaster. And this year isn't any different. Today, I'm joined by Mina Al-Uraibi, Editor-in-Chief of The National and a veteran in covering the General Assembly. Thanks for joining us, Mina. Thanks for having me, Nasser. You've been covering the meeting for more than 10 years. You've seen some of the most iconic moments, Gaddafi's 90-minute speech, Ahmadinejad's last address, several re- resolutions that passed in dramatic fashion. So I want to start off by asking you, does the United Nations General Assembly actually matter, or is it simply a stage for global politics? It does matter. It's the one time of the year where you have either world leaders or the representatives all together in a very small space in Manhattan. And it's an opportunity to take stock. And it's also an opportunity just to break some of the ice on certain issues. Now, sometimes you'd hope that when you have all these decision makers in one place, they could just make quick decisions, especially when there are very urgent matters. So, you know, there have been years when we're all there and people continue to call for the end of the violence in Syria, almost like it's some other planet. Whereas in reality, all of the different parties that are supporting different groups fighting inside of Syria are there together and giving the same speech saying the violence must end in a very um, passive manner, which is frustrating. However, at the end of it, those meetings, you sometimes do get a breakthrough coming through, or at least it gives you a moment where you can put a spotlight on certain issues. So, for example, last year there was the focus on the issues of migration and refugees. Now, we continue to see the flows of refugees and migrants, but it was the first time that you got 193 countries to sign up to at least saying we need to deal with this particular problem and there are certain rights for refugees and those who are displaced. Now, this is even a greater number than those who signed the Geneva Conventions. So that says something, that you can do it. Now, it takes months and months of diplomacy. And usually by the time you get to the General Assembly, some of these agreements have been, you know, worked on by Sherpas or ambassadors or so forth. And then you just have the signing. Or you have moments where you have a high-level meeting, as we're expecting in this year's General Assembly, on Libya. 
there's been a lot of diplomacy on Libya, and now you have the UN Special Envoy taking the opportunity of having all these foreign ministers in New York to bring them together. So it's it's two sides. One is actually the logistics of just having everybody together and able to pull them together. But two, and much more importantly, is the General Assembly represents a moment where states feel the responsibility and the opportunity to come together and push forward on the very complex problems facing the world. You touched on a lot of topics. And I mean, if you want to talk about task loading, the General Assembly this year is definitely going to be that. So at this point and ahead of the event, we're always trying to predict what might be the biggest issues. So what could we expect this year ahead of the event? Well, first of all, this is going to be the first General Assembly uh, general debate with Antonio Guterres as the UN General Secretary, uh, sorry, as the UN Secretary General. And he's brilliant. He was the head of UNHCR for 10 years. He's all about multilateral work, but also is one of those voices for globalization. Now, unfortunately, recently with the rise of extreme nationalism, globalization has been given a bad rep. But he is one of those people that believes that we have global problems that need global solutions, and that requires effort from all sides involved. And so he's actually both a doer, but also somebody who can convene and and work through very difficult situations, which he had when he was um, at UNHCR and previously in his political life in Portugal. So that's that's an important um, change. And this year, of course, will also be the first year that you have Donald Trump as president of the United States. And, you know, his position on the UN has been quite stark and clear in that he wants to have the U.S. less engaged with the UN. So it will be a moment where you have world leaders like uh, French uh, President Macron and others trying to actually support the UN and give it back its, its um, let's say, leadership role. One important world leader who won't be there, of course, will be Angela Merkel because the German elections are happening at the same time. So she's seen now as, you know, leader of the free world or whatever you want to call it. Um, but she won't be there. So that's in terms of personalities. And there are many. I mean, we can, we can go on for, for hours on that. But in terms of issues, there are those that are very important for us here in the Middle East. So we will have, I believe, the Libya issue will come up. Yemen is one that both on the humanitarian crisis. So, of course, on the sidelines of the UN General Assembly meetings, you have lots of side events happening also and opportunities for people to come together. And international humanitarian organizations, their heads are usually there. So I anticipate that we'll have a lot being said and done when it comes to Yemen and the humanitarian crisis there, but also the ongoing war. Um, Another issue that will be there, of course, is Iran. And there are several think tanks actually holding talks and discussions about Iran's activities in the region. So not only the nuclear deal, which used to be the focus, now you're moving on to um, more of the issues of, you know, the support of militants and so forth in the region. And then you have, as ever present, um, Palestine and Israel. Although there isn't any real movement on that front, it is one that always comes back to the UN um, with you know, UN Security Council resolutions that are decades old, that are outstanding, that Israel has refused to implement, but also seen as the one time where you have the quartet of the, the entities that are concerned with pushing the peace process forward. So that's the UN, the US, the EU, and Russia always have an annual meeting there. Um, and try to to support the Palestinians. So we'll see if anything comes up there, but there's no no real high hopes. You have Turkey calling for a high-level meeting on the issue of the Rohingya Muslims. Um, 
we've seen some horrific developments in the last few weeks. And so this will be an opportunity also to, one, try to get some aid and support there, support the countries that are the neighboring countries, but more importantly, come to a longer-term um, resolution. And then I think internationally the biggest issue that will be in front of everyone is North Korea. And, of course, the UN is one of the very few venues around the world where you actually have North Korean presence, where some of these conversations can happen. Um, and I think that will be really one of the biggest challenges that confronts um, the the two weeks of the general debate. Now, of course, the thing with the General Assembly is actually a year-long assembly, right? But nobody really pays attention. It's the general debate when you have these you know, key speeches over the, the course of about um, eight or nine days where you have all the world leaders there. So I think the, that's what we're looking at. And then there are many other side events. Of course, this year is going to be the first year where you don't have the Clinton Global Initiative for the first year, I think, in 12 years. Because, of course, um, the Clinton Global Initiative annual meeting wrapped up assuming that Hillary Clinton would become the president of the United States, which isn't the case. So instead, you have Bloomberg has stepped in, mm -hmm. and you have Bloomberg, um, Bloomberg Global Forum, which will have some really high, big names there. And um, But it's interesting because it's called the Bloomberg Global Business Forum or Bloomberg Business Global Forum. But the idea is that it's focused more on business and less on Clinton Global Initiative, which was working more on you know uh, social entrepreneurship. Well, I want to take you back to uh, how the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is almost always on the table. Uh, it kind of culminates at this time of the year uh, in the event in terms of the debate. And it's always a talking point at the United Nations. And we're nowhere near a peace deal. So some argue that this is an indication of the organization's ineffectiveness, that it's really targeted this as, as one of its main uh, goals. You know, the question becomes... Is this really a representation of how the United Nations works, or is the Palestinian-Israeli conflict a unique case? Look, at the end of the day, the UN is a representation of its members. While Antonio Guterres has put in the effort to try to strengthen the secretariat of the UN, which is the political arm, to so speak, of the UN, they're still bound by what members will or, and won't do. And we know with the Palestinian-Israeli uh, issue is that the U.S. has Israel's back on many issues. And so long as we live in a world where the Security Council, the five permanent members, have the veto power, and that, of course, is, includes the U.S., then they can veto certain resolutions that would push for um, Israel to adhere to international law. And the occupation is recognized internationally by the U.N. as being an illegal occupation. So, so I know it, it feels like this is the bare minimum, but at least we can say that. At least there is the UN and there is a body of international governance that recognizes the Palestinians today where, you know, again, two or three decades ago, there was a push to pretend there are no Palestinians. And it was really Yasser Arafat's ability to go to the UN and give his famous speech the first time. They gave recognition to the Palestinians that didn't exist before in at least the Western world, let's say, if not um, internationally. So, so again, you know, it becomes a platform, but it's it's a moment where, okay, this is what the world agrees to, or at least the majority of the world. You're right in terms of with the Palestinian issue, we're nowhere close to an agreement. And this is where, again, the, it's, it's an example of where local and regional dynamics play a bigger part. And then you come to the UN and you say, how does this fit into the wider picture and where can people support? Um, so, yes, I, you're right. We're not going to expect any major breakthroughs from the General Assembly, but I think it would be wrong to say that this is an indication of the failure of the UN. 
going back to what you said earlier uh, about Trump and his disengagement with international organizations, with international treaties, we saw what he said about the Paris Agreement, which was a huge blow to uh, the 196 countries that agreed with the United States in 2015 to sign this, to reduce global warming to less than two degrees. Angela Merkel isn't in the picture. The U.S. president, who historically has played a very important role, isn't in the picture. And now a lot of people are saying now's China's turn to, to really take the leadership role. I mean, what, what are your thoughts on that? It's true. It, it's clear that China today is seen as the power to turn to, to get stability, I think, more than anything else. Um, part of what we're seeing happening in the U.S. is that with the Trump administration, um, flip-flopping on certain issues. There's a lack of clarity of how stable Trump actually is within the White House and so forth. And so therefore, the amount, the weight that the U.S. had is not the same, in addition to the fact, exactly as you said, is that Trump's decision to you know turn his back on the climate uh, agreement, the fact that he's already announced that the U.S. will curtail all of the budget it spends on international organizations. Now, China is is different altogether, and this would require several podcasts to really go into. But at the heart of it, they seek that leadership position in a different way from the U.S. They're not trying to, say, replicate our model, which, again, with the U.S., it was quite often that it's our system of governance that's best and we want everybody to go in this way. So there was all that pressure that comes with it, whether it was about human rights or system of governance or so forth. The Chinese, that's not the issue. The Chinese is much more straightforward. What are strategic interests? And it's much more transactional. And so therefore, they don't play the same role of saying, let's bring people around the, uh, the table. They don't have this convening power and they don't seek it. Perhaps if they sought it, it would be a different situation. Where they're really getting pressurized on now is North Korea, because that's one in their backyard and two, North Korea the North Korean regime survives as it does because of China's support, and that's clear. And so it'll be interesting to see as North Korea and, you know, the, the missile tests that we've witnessed this year and how close we were to, to possible conflict has made a lot of people nervous, and they're looking to China for leadership. So this will be a real test for China, and it's still not clear how they'll come out from it. Taking it back to the region, uh, a region that Trump is very interested in, uh, the Middle East, historically, what have been the attitudes of Arab countries in regards to uh, the General Assembly? How much faith do they put in the United Nations as a whole? It's a mixed bag between the 22 um, Arab countries. We've seen moments where you have had such frustration with the UN that a country will decide not to even give a speech, which was a decision that Saudi Arabia made a few years ago. And it really threw a lot of people because the expectation is that you will always give a speech. And sometimes it's the head of state, head of government, foreign minister. And the decision was made not to even give a speech as a way of showing the frustration with the UN. And that in itself was a statement. But that rarely happens. Generally, you have large delegations going. Most countries send their foreign ministers. But some countries uh, more in the Levant uh, for Iraq and otherwise send their head of state or head of government. And for them, it's quite important, um, especially as a point of connecting with other countries from around the world. So the countries that, let's say, are in conflict or are weaker, are seeking support, will always go in full force to the UN and to the General Assembly. Um, 
but writ large, most Arab countries and the GCC countries believe in multi multilateral mechanisms, and so there are there. You also usually have the head of the GCC, the Gulf Corporation Council will go, or at least a, a delegation from the GCC. You will have um, Organization of Islamic Cooperation go. So you have regional entities. Of course, the head of the Arab League always goes. So you do get a good mix um, of leadership going there. And what's interesting is that sometimes you have meetings that are done, regional meetings that are done on the sidelines in Manhattan because, again, a logistic opportunity that everyone's there. And then they'll have um, meetings with the group. For example, you have the GCC traditionally would meet with the U.S. or would meet with um, the EU leadership and so forth. This year will be interesting, of course, because there won't be that meeting of the GCC countries because it's anticipated that as we continue with the Qatar crisis and diplomatic ties are broken, you won't have that traditional GCC meeting. So it will be yet to be seen whether it will be Saudi Arabia, the Emirates, Bahrain, and Egypt meeting as the quartet that's isolating Qatar independently, or if you have the, all the GCC meeting without Qatar, yet to be seen. The sidelines, you've covered this for more than 10 years, and I can imagine that so much happens that's outside of the public eye, outside of that green marble, you know, backed podium. Can you give us a bit of an a insider's view into how much happens outside of that room on the sidelines? Well, there's so much that happens even inside that room that you don't always pay attention to. So, for example, it's always really interesting how when the president of the United States is giving his speech, and unfortunately it's always been he until now, when he He's giving his speech. Everyone's in their seats. Everyone's paying attention. They're all there. And then suddenly it goes to, you know, a less important country and, and people start flooding out of the room and you cringe for the poor leader that's sitting at the podium watching all uh, his or her peers leaving the room because obviously not as important. So that, you know, you, you, you notice things like that that are interesting. It's always really interesting also to track who's staying at what hotel and, um, also, Arab uh, delegations are prone to staying in particular hotels and everything. And so you see that. And then it is the side meetings that happen the night before. So say there's a big event on Iran in the morning. The night before, the foreign ministers are often meeting and, and, and trying to come to agreements and making sure that their positions are aligned and so forth. So that's always interesting because as a journalist, that's what you're trying to seek. So you actually write about their positions before things are publicly known. Um, and then you have, like you said, these side events of either really lavish dinners at the, you know, at the Met or some other fancy place. I mean, New York is a great place to be in. So it's kind of fun that some of the meetings happen in great settings. And, you know, you go to some of these great restaurants in uh, New York and you might, you know, bump into so-and-so foreign minister or so wise. So, so it's fun in, in the small space that everyone's um, there. But on a more serious note, you do get that time when people feel a sense of urgency that we need to at least come to an agreement on certain issues. And so I think it's with all the faults that we point out of the UN, this is an important time. And sometimes people think, oh, it's just a bunch of speeches. It's really much more than the speeches, but the speeches are also that time once a year where countries are sending out their priorities. And you can usually tell, especially what their foreign policy is going to be like based on those speeches. This year, I think you will have some discussion about um, what happens after the defeat of ISIS and terrorism. 
And of course, it's always poignant that these meetings happen in New York and there's that sense, you know, the shadow of September 11th, you know, usually the anniversary is just a couple of weeks before. So it is on people's minds. Um, and so we'll see this year also what's said about post-ISIS. Um, and I think you're going to have several discussions happening, again, on the margins and in the sidelines. Nothing major announced in terms of a key meeting. But you'll have a lot of discussions about that. Okay. And we'll look forward to the Nationals' coverage of that. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. One of the most troubling issues today that falls under the UN's purview is a rapidly developing refugee crisis from several sources around the world. We have Yemen, Syria, and Myanmar. People fleeing from crises has increased, and the problem of how to provide them with basic human needs is becoming increasingly more difficult. To walk us through this problem, I'm joined by Toby Harward, head of the UNHCR office in the UAE. Thanks for joining us. You're welcome. You're welcome, Nasser. The General Assembly debate comes at a time where things have really been shaken up in the world, especially when it comes to refugees. There is already a huge crisis uh, with the Syrian refugees, Yemen, now the Rohingya. How has this news from Myanmar changed your approach and can much be done at the event next week? Well, the Rohingya crisis is something that has gone on for many, many years. This latest displacement uh, is not the first. Uh, we have been facing significant displacement from the Rohingya community for many, many decades, in fact. Um, and we've had uh, different res- responses to it uh, in our operations, UNHCR operations in the region and in, indeed in the, in the farther, farther field. I mean, many Rohingyas have been displaced as far as uh, Malaysia and in Indonesia and, and countries in, in Southeast Asia. So it is merely uh, an extension of, a, of an earlier conflict that has now risen uh, to the world headlines because of the most, most, recent, uh, the most recent causes. So, uh, I mean, we are scaling up as far as possible. We are getting fantastic support from the international community to scale up our op- operations to provide support uh, to the Rohingya community uh, in, uh, in, that has been displaced in Bangladesh and elsewhere. Um, but uh, I would say, Nasser, that uh, I mean, this is only one uh, of a significant number of long-running crises and long-running conflicts that have uh, displaced large numbers of people. Indeed, the figures are now 65 million people have been forcibly displaced, both refugees outside of their own countries and internally displaced people inside their own countries. Hmm. This is the biggest uh, number since the modern refugee regime was set up uh, in in 1950, 1951, uh, after the Second World War. And um, the numbers of displaced continue to escalate. And uh, I think uh, the General Assembly uh, next week is a fantastic opportunity uh, that comes every year for heads of state uh, to reflect uh, on the key crises, the key problems uh, affecting this this world. And like last year, uh, when displacement was a major topic, uh, I'm certain that uh, displacement will be uh, very much on the minds, uh, on the agenda uh, of uh, world leaders when they meet in uh, at the General Assembly in New York in, in a few days' time. So th- the Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, was formerly the High Commissioner for Refugees. This, was, this will be his first uh, meeting presi- presiding over it. Is his assignment any indication of what the UN is focusing on now and maybe what are the, the, the main challenges that the world is facing? Uh, well, I mean, his assignment uh, was uh, as, a, as a result of decisions uh, made uh, in the Security Council 
the Security Council, in its wisdom, uh, made 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 that decision. Um, but certainly, uh, displacement has become and is uh, a mega trend uh, of our time. Uh, as I said, uh, with, with 65 million forcibly displaced, and with I think another at least 200, 300 million voluntarily displaced, my my migration, economic migration, uh, the issue of displacement is, is absolutely, uh, absolutely a key, key issue that, uh, that uh, we face, I, I would say, uh, along with climate change. Um, what Secretary General Guterres uh, has said very clearly is that there is a real need, a desperate need for a surge in diplomacy to put an end to the long-running conflicts. Uh, which have been going on in, in many places uh, for now for uh, decades, which have proved unwinnable to the parties involved in those conflicts, but have only destroyed innocent lives and led to mass dis- displacement. I mean, just to name but a few, the conflict in Syria has been going on for seven years now, nearly, um, has, displaced, uh, uh, has displaced over half of the population of that country. Um, but their displacement, Syrian displacement, has only been going on, as I said, for, for five, six, seven years. Somali displacement has been going on since the conflict started in that country in 1991. Afghan displacement has been going on uh, since the, the late 1970s. Um, Colombian displacement, uh, hopefully the war down, now there is winding down and there's a peace process in but different conflicts around the world have been allowed to fester and have not, there have not been solutions found uh, to these conflicts, which have led to an inexorable rise uh, of refugees internally displaced. Um, and uh, this is absolutely, this is where conflict, and I would argue human rights abuses and inequality and increasingly environmental degradation is, lead, is leading to, to for mass forced displacement, um, which again is becoming a key key megatrend of our time. Well, you, you mentioned conflict. Uh, you mentioned also the number, which is 65 million people displaced worldwide. Most are mostly coming from conflict, but many reports indicate that that might be nothing compared to what we might experience uh, from the displacement caused by climate change-induced environmental disasters. So, what is the capacity for global warming to create even uh, deeper refugee crises, and how serious is it? Yeah, I, I mean, certainly, uh, you know, I have seen the UNHCR as an organization has uh, started uh, some time ago doing, doing studies and, and looking and seeing how we may best uh, respond in the future to, to climate change uh, refugees. I mean, there is um, absolutely a, a, a concern that uh, melting ice caps, rising waters um, could well see levels of displacement in, in, the, in the significant uh, countries around the world, um, not just the island nations, but low, low-lying nations uh, could well see changes in their, in their demography um, as a result of, of, of climate change. That is uh, something that concerns uh, UNHCR greatly and is was indeed at the top of the agenda of the former Secretary General Ban Ki-moon and uh, is very much at the top of the agenda of Antonio Guterres. This, this too, climate change, will be uh, a, a major, major aspect of the uh, General Assembly coming up. All right, Toby, thank you for joining us today. Uh, you're welcome, Nasser. Welcome.
So much of the United Nations is contingent on who heads the organization. People who study the UN will often talk about different secretary generals' reigns, like epochs or dynasties. Now, we have Antonio Gutierrez take over Ban Ki-moon's 10 years of relative ineffectiveness, some might argue. The Portuguese has stepped up from his previous role as High Commissioner for Refugees, at a time where the world is experiencing one of the biggest influxes of asylum seekers ever. I'm joined by Carla Mirza, a writer for The National who's working on a piece on the United Nations leadership this week. Thanks for joining us, Carla. Thanks for having me, Nasser. We're going to get straight into it. Don't you think the region has lost hope in the United Nations? You have so many condemnations, uh, so many resolutions that don't really do anything for the people here, the Syrians, the Palestinians, the Yemenis. So the subject on the show, why does the UN matter anymore? The UN does matter, and somewhat it doesn't for certain people, for certain countries. Yes and no. We're not, I cannot really answer your question and say the UN, the, the, UN, uh, the region, sorry, has lost hope in the UN um, because eventually there is a bit of that. And yet we still hope that the UN will lead to change the presence of the UN, the resolutions of the UN, um, all the uh, condemnations. And we still hope for change every time a general secretary, a new general secretary, um, begins his, own, his new mandate. And, and this is something that is inherent to every individual, the matter of hope. So if you consider um, the uh, Arab world and the Arab region, mainly the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is what led to this loss of hope and faith. And regardless of the various condemnations and resolutions and declarations, nothing happened. Nothing has happened because certain countries are held accountable for their actions while others are not. And this is the problem. So, Carla, you're working on an article uh, on leadership in the United Nations. You mentioned a new secretary general. That's Gutierrez. And as it is, it's his first general assembly. This is his first big test uh, since his assumption in the role. So I want to know, what does that mean? Also, is bureaucracy still likely to get in the way? We know that that one of the main criticisms of the United Nations is that there's so much red tape. So is he going to actually achieve more than just being a diplomatic and maybe sometimes some would argue a lame duck presence? We expect a lot of every new secretary general. Not only we as people, as Arabs, but the whole world expects a lot. He has a huge task on his hand. So basically, a lot, of is expe- a lot is expected of him. But you have to say, he is not someone new in the UN. He was previously the higher commissioner for refugees. And he is prepared for the task ahead. He knows what is at stake. He knows what lies ahead because he understands the plight of uh, human despair and of basically the insecurity and precariousness of refugees and their lives and how they are impacted by conflict, by um, everything that has to do with 
everything that touches their lives. So he knows what his role can do for these people. He knows what his role cannot do for these people. And maybe, just maybe, we can hope that he will definitely try to push for things to happen. So talking about roles, uh, the U.S. has usually played a leadership role in the United Nations. Uh, we have uh, historically, despite, you know, with the one previous Ban Ki-moon or even before that Kofi Annan, uh, two different reigns. But now uh, we have Trump. And generally speaking, in his international policies, he seems intent on drawing away from these uh, global uh, agreements. So, I mean, in light of this, what do you think the U.S.'s role is in the United Nations and in the General Assembly coming up next week? So Trump may seem as though he wants to distance himself from the United Nations and all these international organizations and treaties. He seems not to believe in them. He's a businessman, and this is the way he thinks, the way he believes things are. However, what he will realize is that he cannot do this. There are several elements of his foreign policy that are important and that link his, his, the actual internal affairs of his country to other countries in the world. And he cannot do without this dialogue with other nations. He has to face them. And if only mentioning the economy of the country, he needs those other nations. And the UN is not only about politics, it's about human rights, about trade, about everything else. And he cannot afford not to take it into consideration. Uh, as we've seen um, during the Iraq War of 2003, uh, the war did have an impact. It's foreign policy. It did impact the U.S. administration back then, which is Bush, uh, President Bush's uh, administration. Same thing with the Syrian conflict and, uh, conflict and Obama. So he cannot go forward without United Nations. All right, Carla, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Nasser. I'd like to thank Mina Arabi, Carla Mirza, and Toby Harward for joining me on this episode of Beyond the Headlines. I'd also like to thank my producer, Kevin Jeffers. Remember, next week we'll be recording from New York. You can find all our podcasts on our website, iTunes, or wherever else you get your podcasts from. I've been your host, Nasr al-Wesmi. Thank you for listening, and goodbye.